Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. And if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles in the backs of the pews and turn to page 953. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those Bibles as a gift. Again, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Let's pray. Living God, help us to hear your word that we may truly understand. That understanding we may believe. And believing we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What a beautiful, gospel-rich text we have right in front of us. This is one of those texts where if you've been in the church for a while, these words are familiar. We sing that song, Cornerstone, right? Jesus is our cornerstone. But the danger of being familiar with these words is that we have the tendency to blow past them. They lose significance. And this morning we have the opportunity to slow down and consider what Peter is telling us about Jesus and about the church. So what image springs to mind when you think about the word church? Do you automatically picture a building? Maybe a building with a steeple on it? I've got a lot of friends who go to churches or actually go to buildings that look nothing like your typical church building. And I love our building. This is a beautiful building. I love the way that the doors look. I love that we have brick on the outside and we have this beautiful wood on the inside. And I love these windows. I love it when the, sh the sun shines through these windows as we're worshiping on Sunday mornings. But here's a question, though. Is this building the church? Is this building the church? 
No. We are the church. Amen? And a couple weeks ago, I received a letter from a family who visited our church for the first time. There were many nice things that were said in that letter, but there was one thing that was said at the end of it that brought tears to my eyes. They wrote, the church is alive in Elgin. <laughs> That's what we want to be, right? We want to be a living church. To be stones, as Peter says, built into a living church. But how is it that we have become a living church, and how can we stay a living church? Peter tells us in these verses that the living church is built upon Jesus and consists of a chosen people who praise and proclaim him. In our text this morning, Peter reminds us of how God sees the church. We, every Sunday, are going to have to remind ourselves of who Peter is writing to. This letter was written to Christians who were scattered all throughout modern-day Turkey, and they were experiencing serious opposition. There's no doubt that they were facing moments of doubt and fear. And in these verses, Peter reminds them of their true identity in Christ. And that God has called them to be a people who make up the church, who enjoy the titles, the honors, the privileges, and responsibilities of the people of Israel because they are the new covenant people of God. We are the new covenant people of God. And so in these verses, we'll see three things. Who is Jesus? He's the living cornerstone. We'll see who are we? We're the living church and a holy priesthood. And what are we to do? We are to offer spiritual sacrifices and declare the excellencies of God. But the main point of my sermon this morning is this. The living church is built upon Jesus and consists of a chosen people who praise and proclaim him. All right, so first and foremost, what is Peter telling us about Jesus in these verses? Take a look at verse four. It says, as you come to him, this him is referring to Jesus Christ. Peter says that Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. A living stone. Peter uses many metaphors in his letters. And a metaphor is something that helps us describe something by comparing it with something else. So a common metaphor that we often use is, you are my sunshine. It means someone brightens up your life. They bring you joy. You are my sunshine. So here when Peter calls Jesus a living stone, he's not saying that Jesus is literally a stone, but he is like a stone. Stones are pretty solid objects. And the Greek word used here for stone refers to a carefully selected carved stone that was used for construction. But calling Jesus a living stone is interesting. It's a strange image, isn't it? A living stone. How can a stone be alive? I can't, of course. 
But what Peter is trying to help us see is that Jesus is stable and steadfast like a stone and yet very much alive. He's not dead and cold as a stone, but he is as solid as one. He is alive. He has risen from the dead and lives forever. And he also gives life to all who trust in him. He is a living stone. And there are two things that are said about this living stone. You see that in the text? He's a living stone, first and foremost, rejected by men. Peter could be referring to the Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but because he uses the word men, he most likely is referring to a wider group of people. The natural man, those who are not born again, reject Jesus and his redeeming work. This living stone is rejected by men. But secondly, he is chosen and precious to God. Here Peter is bringing up this doctrine of election again. In contrast to the rejection of men, Jesus is chosen by God. Well, Peter is telling us that in the beginning, in eternity, the Son was chosen by the Father to be what no one else could be, the Savior of God's people. Jesus was chosen to save sinners through his death on the cross. He was chosen, but not forced. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life as the chosen one. And he's not only chosen, but he's precious to God. He is the beloved son. Peter could have been thinking of when he was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And God the Father from heaven said these words about Jesus. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Though sinful men despise and reject him, God the Father considers him as precious. This living stone is chosen and precious to God. So to those of you here, my question is, what does Jesus mean to you? Is he precious? Peter continues this metaphor and solidifies this idea of a living stone by using three Old Testament passages in verses 6 through 8. Take a look at verses 6 through 8. He's showing us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's going to draw a contrast between Christians who receive Jesus and the non-Christians who reject him and disobey the gospel. Verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This first quote comes from Isaiah 28, verse 16. And he is confirming what he has already said in verse 4, but he's using the scriptures. Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. But here in this verse, the word cornerstone is used instead of living stone. In the construction of ancient buildings, the cornerstone was the first stone that was placed at the base and the corner of the building. And it was the largest and it was the heaviest and most carefully positioned stone in the entire structure. 
It established the foundation and then determined the whole design of the rest of the building. Without it, the building was completely unstable and could collapse at any moment. But what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is the cornerstone of God's house, the church. And by quoting from the Old Testament, he's helping his readers understand that Jesus has always been the foundation of God's people. Without him, people have no foundation and no direction. And it's interesting that Peter is the one making the point that Christ is the living cornerstone. Because Jesus is the one who gave him the name rock. Peter means rock. Even though the Roman Catholics have missed the point, Peter hasn't. The church is not built on Peter. The church is built on Jesus Christ. And this verse from Isaiah says that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This would be such an encouragement to those who are reading this letter for the first time however isolated and marginalized they felt, their stability rested on Jesus, the cornerstone. And by believing in him meant that they would never be abandoned by God. It meant that they would never be brought to shame. This language of shame here points to the day of judgment when all people will have to give an account before God. All of us will have to give an account before God. And those who put their faith in Jesus will not be shamed on that day. In fact, in verse 7, Peter says that those who believe will receive honor. To be sure, honor is not due to us because of something, some worth that we have or achievements that we have accomplished, but it's the result of being a member of God's family through Jesus Christ What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful gospel promise that those who believe will not be brought to shame but will receive honor at the day of judgment. Wow. Then Peter writes in verse 7, but for those who do not believe, verse 8, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. And Peter's making this point that the cornerstone divides people into two groups. There are those who believe in him and then those who reject him. And this is not the first time that Peter has used this scripture from Psalm 118. In Acts chapter 4, when he and John were arrested and brought before the religious leaders in Jerusalem, Peter said this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The religious leaders thought they were building a people for the glory of God, 
and yet they rejected the only foundation that God would accept. But by the cross and by the resurrection, God's eternal plan of salvation was accomplished. It was fulfilled. So those who crucified Jesus accomplished what God had planned from the beginning. In their rejection of Christ, the builders served to put God's stone in place. What a comfort for believers that even in the face of rejection, God's purposes are fulfilled. And those who reject the cornerstone stumble over it and fall. Take a look at verse 8. Here Peter is quoting from Isaiah 8, 14. He says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus is a stone over which people trip and fall to their own destruction. Another way of saying this is that if people reject Christ, their rejection will be their own undoing. They stumble as a result of their disobedience to the word, which means their rejection of the gospel message. This is what they were destined for, to stumble if they disobey. The stone is set there by God's purpose so that if people refuse to build on it, it will become the means of their ruin. Christ is the only way to salvation, and to reject him means destruction. God's word calls us to repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, but not everyone obeys this call. This was true of those in the first century, and this is true of those in our world today. But the stakes could not be made more clear. Those who disobey the gospel message are destined to perish. Those who put their faith in Jesus are standing on solid ground, and they will never be put to shame. But those who reject the gospel will stumble and fall. Back in 2015, a woman in California cleaned out her garage and brought a few large boxes filled with electronics to a local recycling center. Inside of one of those boxes was an intact Apple One, Apple One desktop computer, which is only one of 200 that were created by Apple's original founders. The recycling center realized what they had on their hands, and they quickly sold the computer to a rare computer collector for almost a quarter of a million dollars. And from the article I read, the recycling center is still looking for the woman to offer her 50% of the profits. Have you ever thrown something away that proved to be more valuable than you thought? I have. This lady didn't realize what she had and gave away a quarter of a million dollars. But this loss is nothing in comparison for what is lost when people reject Jesus. Some people reject Jesus because they think he's irrelevant. Others because they don't want to give up control in their lives. 
Some don't think they need forgiveness that he offers. But the stone that has become the cornerstone causes those who reject him to stumble and fall. And so if you are here and you have not believed in Jesus, I urge you to come to him, to come to the living stone. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And like Peter said in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so put your trust in Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He is the only source of salvation, and he is the only foundation for the church to be built on. He is the living cornerstone. This is who Jesus is. But what about those who have put their trust in him? Who are we? This leads us to our next section. Who are we? We are a living church and a holy priesthood. Take a look at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Peter continues this thought in verses 9 through 10 by saying, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As we come to Jesus, meaning as we believe in him and continually come to him to abide in him and worship him, Peter says that we are like living stones. If we are in Christ, who is the living stone, we too are living stones stones that, be, that are being built up as a spiritual house. We have this image of Christ being the chief cornerstone of the building, and then all believers are being built into this living church. There's some symbolism here of the Old Testament temple that was the dwelling place of God. But that temple was built with stones that are not alive. What Peter is getting at is that this spiritual house, this spiritual and living church replaces the old temple in Jerusalem. The temple is where people went to worship and pray and fellowship with one another. But the church is not a building anymore. The church is a people. The church is the people who are built on Jesus, the cornerstone. And this is an important message for our me-centered culture, right? The world does not revolve around you and me. It revolves around Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the one who we are built upon. You don't become part of the living church by coming to a living church. You become part of a living church by coming to the living Savior. That means you are becoming like him. Your renewed affections, you have a renewed love. We are being built up. We are growing in spiritual maturity. 
And in these verses, Peter helps us see the unity, the significance and purpose of all believers. Have you noticed here that Peter's language is corporate? It's not spoken to individuals. You can't build a house with one stone. You need many stones. He calls each and every one of us individually. But as we come to him, he brings us together. We need each other. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. The importance of being part of a local church is seen here in this text. Consider how Peter's original readers would have read this text. As they were alienated from their society, scattered all throughout these regions, they were assured that they were part of something greater, an everlasting community. We often talk about going to church, right? I'm going to church. But we actually don't go to church like we go to the grocery store or go to the doctor. We don't go to church. We are the church. I was talking with Pastor Scott the other day, and he said then uh, when, when Pastor Tim, one of the previous pastors at Calvary, and his wife Joyce would go out for a drive, sometimes Joyce would see this beautiful church building and would say, oh, Tim, look at that church. Isn't it beautiful? And Tim would say, I don't know. I haven't met them. <laughs> it's a great story. It's true. The church isn't a building. It's a people. We are the church. We sometimes forget this. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And we are also a holy priesthood. Peter continues this Old Testament imagery of the temple by calling all believers to a holy priesthood. The Old Testament priesthood was restricted to only those who are part of the tribe of Levi. And those in the tribe of Levi would offer two categories or two, two types of sacrifices to God. The first one would be sacrifices in order to remove the guilt of sin. And then there were sacrifices of thankfulness because that sin was removed. We aren't called to do the first. Christ has fulfilled the first. Jesus is the one true sacrifice for sins. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Speaking of the Old Testament priests. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There is no longer a need to make sacrifices to remove the guilt of sin. But as a holy priesthood, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices of thankfulness because our sin has been removed. Because we've been made holy by the blood of Jesus, we are called to serve the Lord, not by animal sacrifices, but by offering spiritual sacrifices. We are called to thank and praise God for what he has done in Romans 12:1 it says to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Hebrews 13:15 tells us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips 
that acknowledge his name. As the priesthood of believers, we are active participants in worship. We bring our lives, we bring our lips, and we bring our hearts in worship. And these sacrifices are only made acceptable through Jesus. The temple is replaced by the Christian church. The atoning altar is replaced by Jesus and his shed blood. And the Levitical priests are replaced by all who believe in Jesus. Our sacrificial lives of devotion to the Lord are not what makes us acceptable to God. Jesus himself is the ultimate sacrifice. In light of his great work of redemption, we devote ourselves wholeheartedly to him and serve as the holy priesthood. And the validation of our status as a holy priesthood comes from verses 9 and 10, where we see that the church is the new Israel. Take a look at verses 9 through 10. Peter first says that we are a chosen race. The Christians that Peter was writing to were scattered and suffering. Their circumstances would have made them feel worthless. But here Peter reminds them that God chose them. He loved and elected them before the foundations of the earth. But notice here he doesn't call them chosen individuals, but a chosen race. Each member of this race shares in the abundance of God's electing love. And because of the new birth, we have been brought into the family of God. We have become a people, a chosen race. The people of Israel all throughout the Old Testament were called God's chosen people. But now in the new covenant, those who belong to Christ are God's chosen ones. And this chosen race has nothing to do with ethnicity because it's composed of every ethnicity. It's not defined by color or culture, but by what we believe. To be called a chosen nation is not to be only in a place of privilege, but also a call to serve God. We are a royal priesthood. We've already talked about being priests, but here Peter calls it a royal priesthood. We come under the king of the universe, the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he calls us to spread his truth to a needy world. The amazing gospel privilege of the priesthood of all believers means that every Christian has direct access to God through Christ without any other mediator. It is only through Christ. We are a royal priesthood. We are also a holy nation. As holy people, we are set apart from sin, set apart from this world we live in in order to live for God and for his purposes. And then lastly, we are a people for his own possession. The world may hate and reject us, but God loves and treasures his children. God takes special care of those things that belong to him. He'll take special care of us. And Peter says that because of all these amazing privileges we have in the gospel, look at verse 9. 
We should respond by proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God has chosen and delivered us so that we would praise him, that we would proclaim to the world what God has done through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. When we consider how he has brought us out of darkness, out of our spiritual ignorance, out of our sin. We were blind to the beauty and the excellency of Jesus in which we now see him clearly and we know him. This should fill us with wonder and praise and make us want to declare his excellencies in our churches And out there in the world, one of the most important tasks of the church is to prize Jesus as the precious one so that all the world would see that he is. Do you wonder what God is doing in your life? Like, what's what's my purpose? Why do I have this job? What will I do? What is God calling me to do? What am I good at? Whatever it is, at the center of it, it should be to proclaim the excellencies of God who saved you. Look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All these things have come to us, not because we deserve them or somehow earned them, but it's because of God's mercy. Once we lived in ignorance, without pardon, without the knowledge of the fact that we were sinners, without knowing the way out in which our sins could be forgiven, but God and his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are now God's people We at one time had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. And we, like Peter's readers, live in an environment that is hostile towards our faith. Jesus was rejected by men and yet chosen and precious in the sight of God. And so no matter what society labels you as, for those who believe in Jesus, the cornerstone, These gospel truths are true of you. This is what you should be reciting to yourself as you start to feel the doubt, as you start to feel the fear. You are now living stones being built together into a spiritual house. You are chosen. You are loved. You are precious to God. Remember 
the mercy that has been extended to you. So let us offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and declare the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus has called us to be his witnesses in this world. There are people in our families. There are people in our workplaces. There are people in our schools who have no idea that Jesus is the living stone that can give them a living hope. They have no idea that Jesus is the cornerstone who can give them a secure foundation, a true identity, and a purpose in this world. So we must tell them. We must proclaim to all of God's saving grace. The living church is built upon Jesus and consists of a chosen people who praise and proclaim him. Let's pray.